welcome back to our New Testament survey. And we are working our way through the New Testament, one book at a time. Each week we're looking at a different book in its entirety to try and discern not only the author, but what his purpose was in writing the book, what the major themes of the book are, and how it fits into the biblical canon. And so this evening, uh, we are continuing and we find ourselves in the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark. This is the second uh, of the four gospels. It bears the name of Mark, which we would identify as being uh, the young man John Mark that we see uh, in the book of Acts. We find him joining Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. Uh, and then later abandoning them and going back to Jerusalem. And then later we find uh, Paul and Barnabas at odds with one another over this young man. Paul does not want to take him on their second journey because he abandoned them in the middle of the first one. So Barnabas takes him, Paul takes Silas, they go their separate ways. But then later uh, in the course of events, we see in the book of Second Timothy that Paul wrote to Timothy and told him to bring Mark uh, to where Paul was in prison in Rome because he found Mark useful for ministry. So Mark obviously matured and grew in his faith uh, and in his boldness and became uh, useful for the ministry of the gospel. So he's there, he's involved with the New Testament church, but he was not one of the apostles, he was not one of the, the 12 disciples. Uh, so we don't know how much of the events of Christ's life he witnessed firsthand himself, but we have uh, early church fathers writing about this gospel that bears his name, uh, quoting from it. Uh, in fact, there's an early church father named Papias in 140 AD who quotes the apostle John as having said that Mark accurately recorded Peter's testimony concerning Christ. So most scholars would take that uh, and understand that what we have here is Mark as Peter's assistant near the end of Peter's life with him in Rome, uh, writing down uh, the gospel and the things that he has heard from Peter, particularly sermons he has heard Peter preach, uh, different teachings that Peter may have done to the church concerning the life of Christ. And of course, then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, Mark records these things for us. Written somewhere in the early 60s AD, so shortly after the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but before the fall of Jerusalem. It would have been written during the time when Nero was emperor, uh, when the Christians were being persecuted. Uh, and so we'll find that Mark is particularly interested in Christ as the suffering servant of Isaiah. As he's writing to Christians that are undergoing persecution and suffering, he is presenting to them their Messiah as one who ultimately suffered that they might be uh, freed from bondage to sin. And so we do see that as his primary purpose throughout the book. There are a lot of quotations and allusions to the book of Isaiah here in Matthew. He's constantly uh, referencing or alluding to Isaiah, particularly the servant songs there in Isaiah and this image of Christ as the servant of the Lord in Isaiah who suffers in order that his people might be saved. Similar to uh, the book of Matthew, if we were to outline Mark very basically, uh, we said that Matthew kind of arranged his gospel geographically. Uh, we had Jesus uh, in 
Galilee and then around the Jordan River and then we had him uh, in Jerusalem. Mark does something very similar. Uh, Chapter 1 through chapter 8 verse 26 focuses on Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee and there's a very short section in the middle from chapter 8 verse 27 through the end of chapter 10 that is Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, And there's a little bit of teaching and things that happen there, but that's pretty much his journey to Jerusalem and kind of the building up of the anticipation of the suffering that will occur in Jerusalem. And then chapters 11 through 16, uh, over a third of the gospel is concerned with Christ's ministry in Jerusalem, his passions, crucifixion, and his resurrection. And so, as far as major themes go, I've already mentioned one of them, and that would be this idea of Christ as the suffering servant um, from Isaiah. But also, he focuses on the idea of exodus. Uh, He will focus on, uh, there are some things in Isaiah that allude to the book of Exodus, and in Exodus, you'll remember God led the people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, Well, when Isaiah writes, the people are in bondage, they're in slavery uh, to Babylon, and so there's this idea that uh, the people will be rescued. God will lead them out of Babylon as he had led them out of Egypt and bring them back to the promised land, so sort of a second exodus. And Mark picks up on those ideas and those themes and, and alludes to the fact that Christ, as the suffering servant of Isaiah, will lead his people on a new exodus, a spiritual exodus from bondage to Satan rather than uh, bondage to a national power here on earth and lead them to spiritual freedom. Uh, And so one of the key passages that we find uh, that informs Mark's writings would be Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 5 uh, where it says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And so we see this idea throughout Mark. We'll notice that Mark includes a lot of instances of Jesus uh, healing the downtrodden, uh, particularly ministering to Gentiles. The idea is that Jesus, in this final spiritual exodus, is just as God led the people of Israel out of Egypt and constituted them as a new nation, that Christ is constituting a new thing as he establishes his church. Uh, And so those are kind of the major themes of the Gospel of Mark. So let's work our way through some of this and see particularly how he approaches this. If we begin here uh, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, verse 1 through 3, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So he begins immediately uh, by, first of all, introducing his subject, that this is the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. 
the Son of God. And so he starts off right away with two big theological topics. He calls Jesus the Christ, that is the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Anointed One, and he identifies him as the Son of God. So two big topics right there that will be in Mark's mind uh, throughout the rest of the writing of the Gospel. He also starts by quoting from the Old Testament. Now what we'll find here is that uh, he quotes from a couple of different passages and one of the, the commentaries I read by Benjamin Glad uh, commented that it, it was his understanding that there should not be a period at the end of verse 1 that what Mark was really saying was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. In other words, he's sharing the good news about Jesus as it was written in the prophets. And then he quotes from a couple of prophets to make that point as he begins to share his gospel. Now, one of the things that Mark likes to do, and we'll see this several times throughout the gospel, is he likes to uh, kind of take two ideas and put them together uh, and sandwich them together in such a way that he kind of repeats them a couple of times in order to help us see that they're supposed to be connected. And so one of the things he's doing with these Old Testament quotations here is that he's quoting from uh, the book of Exodus, the book of Malachi, and the book of Isaiah. And so he mentions the prophets, and then he quotes from Exodus, and then he quotes from Malachi, and from Isaiah. And he quotes these passages about, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so in Exodus chapter 23, uh, God tells the people of Israel as he is leading them out of Egypt and to the promised land that he uh, prepares the way for them. And so we see in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you in to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So uh, he says he's going to send this messenger, this angel, before them to lead them and guide them into the promised land. Uh, then in Malachi 3, 1, 3 verses 1 through 6, Malachi picks up on that idea uh, but as Malachi says it, he says that God is sending a messenger to prepare the way for God as God comes to judge Israel for their sins. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 11, Isaiah picks up on that same idea and again says that he is sending a messenger to prepare a way for the people to leave Babylon and return to the promised land. And so, he sandwiched those ideas together, three exoduses. Two of them, the first one and the second one, are the messenger preparing the way for their exodus. The second one was the messenger preparing the way for God to judge his people. And so those are themes that we'll see over and over again throughout Mark's gospel. Mark explains how Israel uh, and the Gentiles alike, both of them, uh, suffer from the results of sin and need to be rescued. And so 
they need to be purified in order for God's presence to be there with them. And so this is what the messenger's purpose is, is to prepare the way. He is to prepare the people. Uh, And so John the Baptist calls them to repentance and offers them a baptism of repentance, uh, which is analogous with some of the Old Testament washings uh, that the people of Israel would go through in order to be ritually clean so that they could go into the temple and worship. And so John's baptism is preparing the people. It's cleansing them as they repent and receive baptism. They are then prepared for the coming of the Messiah, who of course is Christ. And you'll notice that Mark has just jumped right into this. Unlike Mark or Luke, there's no birth narrative. Jesus is going to storm onto the scene as a fully grown man at his baptism uh, in the Jordan River by John. So uh, Mark is very concerned with Jesus' public ministry and Jesus fulfilling these prophecies of the suffering servant and the coming king. Uh, And so he jumps right into that. You'll also notice, if you look down at verse 12, that after he presents to us the baptism of Jesus, he says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. This is one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, immediately. Everything happens immediately, according to Mark. He uses this at least 25 times in 16 chapters. Uh, So his story is fast-paced. Things are happening one right after another, and it kind of helps to serve that same uh, purpose The way he sandwiches things together in order for us to see the connections, uh, he's moving the story along very quickly so that we can see the broad scope of it and not get lost in the details. He wants us to keep going with the story, keep reading it. Immediately this happened, then that happened, then that happened, and he's making a a larger point, joining these events together. In verse 14, um, we see him beginning... Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So if you'll remember from last week, Matthew uh, didn't use this phrase, the kingdom of God, very often, one or two times, but he used the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, more often. Matthew's concern was with the spiritual aspect of the kingdom breaking in to the earthly life of Israel through the ministry of Christ, where Mark's concern is to present to us Christ as the coming Messiah, as the king uh, of the heavenly kingdom, of, of God's kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom of God. And so Mark's purpose is a little different, and that's why his phrasing is different. In verse 17, then... We read this, then Jesus said to them, he's he's come up to uh, some brothers, Simon and Andrew, who are fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, this is a popular verse that we're all very familiar with, this idea of becoming uh, fishers of men. This is a reference, an allusion to a passage in the the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah uh, chapter 16 God is promising his future restoration of the nation of Israel as they've been scattered into exile and bondage in other places. 
uh, he says that he is going to gather them back together. And so he says, the Lord who lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them, for I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And so Mark is alluding here, Jesus is alluding back to this passage in Jeremiah that uh, the disciples that he is calling are a fulfillment of that prophecy in Jeremiah. He's going to make them fishers of men to gather into the kingdom, uh, the children of the kingdom. Then we also notice a recurring theme here in Mark's gospel that we'll see some more in a few minutes. But if we look down in chapter 1, verse 34, uh, Jesus is... Uh, casting out demons and healing those who are sick. And it says, Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now this is one of Mark's recurring themes. Mark is presenting to us Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one promised throughout the Old Testament. But he's making the point that the Messiah is not the political savior that Israel had expected. He is the suffering servant who will suffer for his people's sins and bear their iniquities, bear the curse for them. He is not coming in order to lead a political revolt against Rome. This is not what they expected. And so Mark makes that point by repeatedly telling us that Jesus told people and told demons not to tell other people who he was. He was not coming in order to gather a big crowd, an army, so that he could rebel against Rome. He was coming to suffer and to die. And so over and over again, as he cast out demons, he tells them not to speak about who he is. As he heals various people, he asks them not to publish that abroad because he's trying to keep it quiet so that he can fulfill uh, his calling to go to the cross. Although there are some interesting exceptions to that that we'll note here in a few minutes. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 44, we see this same thing happening again. Uh, Jesus has cleansed uh, a leper who came to him and wanted to be clean. And after he has healed him, uh, it says in verse 43, he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So again, Jesus commands him not to say anything. Of course, verse 45, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely. Uh, so some of these people weren't so good at keeping it quiet. They were excited. They'd been healed. Uh, they'd, their sins had been forgiven. Uh, and so they're excited and they want to tell other people about that. But Jesus is trying to keep it uh, quiet because he doesn't want uh, the crowd to, before the time is appropriate, uh, to try and stir up something uh, against Rome. In chapter 2, uh, we see a couple more times uh, that Mark uses this phrase immediately. Uh, chapter 2, beginning uh, in verse 1, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. Uh, and then at the end of this episode, he heals this uh, paralyzed man forgives his sins and heals him. In verse 12, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so again, Mark is moving the pace of the story along quickly here with all these immediately. In chapter 2, verse 13, 
we see that Jesus begins to call his, uh, more disciples. He had called Peter and Andrew earlier. Now he calls Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. And so he's begun to call uh, the various disciples to him. In chapter 3, then, uh, in verse we see him healing a man on the Sabbath and beginning to have controversy with the Pharisees. And in verse 6, Mark now introduces, again with this immediately phrase, but he introduces uh, the hostility here between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Uh, and so we begin to see uh, where this is leading ultimately, which is, uh, to suffering and to death for the Messiah. In verse 12, once again, uh, we have Jesus um, interacting uh, with people and we have someone with an unclean spirit and it says that when in verse 11, the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned him, them that they should not make him known. So once again, he is uh, calling on these spirits to not speak what they know concerning who he is until the time is right. Then he appoints the 12 apostles. He's got multitude of disciples following him. Uh, and so we see in chapter 3, verse 14, that he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So it's not just that uh, these 12 men are going to be with him, but he is going to commission them and send them out to preach uh, the good news of the kingdom of God, which we will see in a moment. Uh, but they're also, in verse 15, are to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And so uh, the things that Christ has been doing, which tell us that the kingdom of God is at hand, and his disciples will not only be commissioned to proclaim that good news, but to perform those deeds themselves. And then we are given the names of these 12 men. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. And so he's got his 12 disciples now. Uh, but now we have uh, conflict arising uh, to a greater degree with the Jewish leaders. Uh, and so there's some interesting things here in the remaining verses of chapter 3. Uh, we see another of John's sandwiching of two ideas together. Uh, in verse 20, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. So Jesus is teaching and healing and doing these miracles, but when his own family and friends, his own people find out about it, they think, this guy's gone crazy. We've got to go out and rein him in before he gets himself in trouble. They reject his ministry. They don't believe uh, who he is. Well, then down in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem which Mark is subtle there telling us where they came from because that's where we're ultimately going to end up uh, in Jerusalem for his passion, said he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So now we have the Jewish leaders rejecting Jesus' authority, 
accusing him of being in league with Satan. And then, if you skip down to verse 31, it says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And so, again, we have Jesus' family there uh, trying to maybe get him off the street. And he's out there preaching these things and and healing and doing these things. He's going to get himself in trouble. Uh, Maybe he's lost his mind, doesn't know who he is. So Mark has put these two episodes of his closest family and associates and in between that, the Jewish leaders, uh, all opposing Christ's ministry, rejecting his ministry. And so he's making the point here that uh, Jesus' ministry is not rejected by those who, it is rejected, it's not accepted by those who should have accepted it. Those who knew him well, uh, his own family, the Jewish leaders who should have known the Old Testament, they rejected him. But there's also an interesting allusion Uh, here to the Old Testament in the Jewish leaders' rejection of Jesus. They accused him of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. And so Jesus' answer to them is to tell them this parable, saying, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. And then in verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Uh, so Jesus is saying, I, say, why would Satan be fighting against himself here? It doesn't make any sense. That would only cause his own downfall. But in verse 27, when he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, we go, okay, that's logical. It makes sense. But we might miss the fact that this is an allusion uh, to Isaiah chapter 49. And I'll flip back there and read this to you real quickly. Isaiah chapter 49, uh, beginning in verse 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So when Jesus tells this parable about binding the strong man and plundering his goods, he's making the point that he is the Lord, spoken of here in Isaiah, who will lead the captives of the Mighty One free, and so he is plundering Satan. He's making the point that Satan is the might, the strong one and not Rome. It's not political salvation that he brings, but spiritual salvation. As we move on to chapter 4, verse 1 through 20, the parable of the sower uh, is, seems to be positioned right here to explain to us why Jesus' ministry is being rejected. Why are people not believing who he is and believing the things that he's doing? Well, it's because we have this parable of the sower that explains that people's hearts are different and and some people are like good soil and some people are bad soil and, and the seed does not take root. And so the parable explains why the Messiah is rejected. And then in verse 35, 
through 41, we see again another episode uh, related to us of Jesus calming the storm. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and, the, uh, and other little boats were also with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so once again we have... Uh, this scene of Jesus as the one who calms the storm, which is in the book of Psalms, the Lord is the one who calms the storm. And we also notice in Mark's account of this episode, which we saw last week in Matthew, but in Mark's account there are some subtle little details that kind of clue us in that this probably is Peter's testimony that Mark is recording. Uh, Peter, as a fisherman who lived his life on the Sea of Galilee, would make note of the fact that there were other little boats following them along or, or the stern of the boat uh, is where Jesus is resting. Things like that that Mark might not have been familiar with, but a fisherman who grew up on the sea and in a boat would have known. And so, let me find my place here. Um, as we move into chapter 5, uh, we get, uh, we begin to see this theme of Mark's that Jesus in this new exodus, this spiritual exodus, a creation of a new people, a new nation, uh, is including uh, people who were not included by the nation of Israel. And so at the beginning of chapter 5, it says, then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadareans. So they're, they're on the other side of the sea. They're no longer in Israel. Uh, they're in a land of the Gentiles. And one thing you'll notice here is that when we have a, a demon-possessed man uh, who, in verse 6, it says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by, by God that you do not torment me. Then in verse 8, For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And so Jesus has a conversation with the, the demons that are possessing this man. He does not tell the demons to be quiet, as he did when he was in Israel. He doesn't silence them. And then what's interesting is he casts the demons out of the man. And then as they get in the boat to return to Israel, down in verse 18... When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus doesn't tell this Gentile to be quiet. The Gentiles would not have had the same expectations of political salvation that Israel would have. And so we see continually that he tells the Jewish people to be quiet. He tells the demons when he's in Israel to be quiet. But when he's not in Israel, he tells them to go tell other people what the Lord is doing. And then we see this immediately as we look down in verse 43. Uh, we have another episode. Jesus has crossed over back into Israel again. Uh, and he is healing people and there's someone's daughter has died and Jesus comes and raises her from the dead. And 
It says immediately in verse 42, immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. So he's back in Israel and he again is commanding them not to spread the news. So we can see that contrast that Mark is making us aware of. And then in chapter 6, we see Jesus rejected in Nazareth uh, where he was known again. And then in, cha- in chapter 6, verse 7, he calls the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper for their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And then he gives them instructions and in telling them that they are to go out and to preach that people should repent, to cast out demons, to anoint the sick and to heal them. And so he's commissioned the 12 and sent them out to proclaim uh, the good news of the kingdom. Then at the end of chapter 6, we return back to um, the land where he had cast the demons out of that man and told that man to go and tell people what the Lord had done. And so we see in verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. And so we see the results of that man's testimony that Jesus told him to go back to your people, to your family and your friends, and tell them of the great things that God has done for you. The next time Jesus shows up in that country, they recognize him and they all come out wanting uh, to to be healed by Christ. In chapter 7, then, we see uh, conflict with those in Jerusalem uh, beginning to escalate. And Jesus quotes to them a passage from Isaiah uh, in verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we begin to see the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders escalate. And then in verse 26, uh, we again see Jesus uh, healing a Gentile. Uh, There's a woman who's a Greek, uh, and she is asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. Uh, Jesus said to her, Let the children be first filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Uh, and so when she came to her house, she found the demon gone out of her daughter gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And so Jesus is again healing a Gentile, uh, making the point that these people are being included into this new people that Jesus is constituting in this new exodus. He then again goes to the Decapolis, another land of the Gentiles, uh, and again they receive him. And so Mark seems to be making the point that when he goes to Nazareth, when he goes to Galilee, Uh, When he interacts with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he receives only hostility, rejection, and disbelief. When he goes to the Gentiles, they're receptive to his message. And so John the Baptist was right uh, to call Israel to repentance. They needed to repent and be baptized for 
the remission of their sins, for repentance, cleanliness, so that they would be prepared to receive the Lord because they obviously were not. In chapter 8, then, uh, we have an interesting episode where the, the disciples clearly cannot understand who Jesus is and what he is about. And so he, he feeds the 4,000, and then he is teaching and warning them uh, to be cautious about the Pharisees and their teaching. And it says in verse 21, he said to them, how is it you do not understand? So his disciples, just they're not grasping it. They're not getting what Jesus is about. And then the next episode that Mark relates to us is a blind man being healed. Now, interestingly, uh, this blind man is healed in stages. And he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. When he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And then, of course, he sends the man uh, away to his house and says, neither go into town nor tell anyone in town. So again, we see that theme recurring. But it's interesting that Jesus heals the man, but it was in stages. He began to see, but things still weren't clear. And then his vision became clear. Mark has just told us the disciples don't understand. They can't see what Jesus is doing and who he is. Then he relates this story. And then the next thing he relates to us is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And so the, the disciples Uh, vision of who Jesus is is becoming clearer, just like the blind man's vision. And so they're beginning to see, but their vision is still a little blurry because immediately after Peter's confession, Peter then tries to rebuke Jesus when Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so Peter rebukes Jesus for this, and so then Jesus rebukes Peter. So even though they're beginning to see, their vision, like the blind man, is still a little blurry. They're not seeing clearly uh, what Jesus is about. Again, uh, at the end of chapter 8, we have Jesus telling people, uh, warning people not to tell people about him. Uh, He warned the disciples after Peter's confession that they should tell no one about him. Then, beginning in chapter 9, uh, we're, we're moving from Galilee to Jerusalem now for Jesus' uh, ministry. In chapter 9, verse 7, it says is the, the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, they're on a mount uh, meeting with God, which we talked about that last week in the book of Matthew. Uh, but we have an allusion here in chapter 7. It says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. This is an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 uh, where Moses is speaking to the people and tells them in chapter 18 verse 5, For the Lord your God has chosen him. Um, well, that's not the right verse. Oh, sorry, 15, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. 
So Moses is prophesying that there will come a greater prophet, one greater than Moses, who will rise up out of the midst of Israel and that they should hear him, they should listen to him. And here, the voice comes out of the cloud on the mountain and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so Christ is fulfilling that prophecy of Moses. We see here, beginning at the end of chapter 8, Uh, right after Peter's confession that Jesus began to teach them concerning his suffering and his death in chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, We see this again in chapter 9, verse 31, uh, as he begins to teach his disciples that he will be betrayed uh, and that the men will kill him and that he will rise on the third day. And then in chapter 10, verse 33, we see a third time that Jesus conveys this information uh, to his disciples telling them that of his impending death. And then in chapter 10, verse 45, uh, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is an allusion back to Isaiah again, Isaiah chapter 53, where the prophet records of the uh, servant of the Lord saying, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. But by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And so Jesus is alluding to that passage as he speaks of his coming suffering and death and says that this is why he has come, to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Mark relates to us another case of a blind man as Jesus is coming uh, towards Jerusalem. Uh, There's a blind man, by the way, who calls him twice the son of David, alluding to Christ as the king of Israel and referring back to Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, where Isaiah said that the leaders of Israel were blind like the idols that they worshipped. And Mark, again, is relating to us a blind man who sees clearly who Jesus is, but the Jewish leaders don't. Uh, And so Mark is setting up that contrast for us once again. Then beginning in chapter 11, uh, Mark begins to relay to us Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem uh, and his passion uh, obviously uh, begins with the triumphal entry into the city uh, where Jesus tells his disciples to go and to find a colt that is tied up uh, and to bring it to him that he would ride it into the city. Uh, This is an allusion back to Genesis 49 where Jacob is prophesying over his children and he says uh, of Judah that he will ride on a, that he will have a colt that is tethered to the branch of Judah. Uh, And so this is a a fulfillment of that prophecy there. It's also an allusion to Zechariah chapter 9 and 1 Kings 1 where Zechariah says that the king will come in riding on a donkey. Uh, And in 1 Kings, as David wants to put Solomon on his throne, he tells his servants to bring a donkey for Solomon to ride on as they take him to anoint him as king. And so Jesus fulfills those prophecies uh, as the king 
just as the blind man had proclaimed him to be, coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey uh, as the king. Then in verse 12, Mark does another one of his little sandwich moves. Um, And so we see in chapter 11, verse 12, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Then beginning in verse 15 through 19, Jesus, we have an episode of Jesus cleansing the temple. He goes into the temple, and instead of finding uh, heartfelt worship, instead of finding the temple fulfilling what it should have been, a house of prayer for the nations, instead he finds it uh, as full of money changers and people who are profiting off of those who have come to the temple. Uh, and so it is all for show, but it's, it's hypocritical. There's no actual spiritual fruit there, kind of like the fig tree, full of leaves but no fruit. And, and so then, in verse 20, in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And so Mark is kind of making the point that the nation itself is like the fig tree. Uh, it it's, is not bearing fruit when it should be. Uh, it has all the outward signs, but no actual spiritual fruit. And so Jesus has cleansed the temple, and he will soon uh, prophesy the destruction of the temple as well. Uh, in chapter 12, then, Jesus tells the parable of the, the vine dressers, which is an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 5, uh, where Israel is pictured as God's vineyard, but it is to be destroyed because it is not bearing good fruit. Uh, and so, uh, Mark, Jesus telling this parable is alluding to that. Again, the nation uh, needs that repentance that John was calling them to. John was preparing the way because they were not ready uh, for the Lord to dwell among them. Then in verses 13 through 44 of chapter 12, there's more uh, continuing, escalating conflict with the Jewish leaders. Then in chapter 13, uh, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple and the judgment of Israel. And then a large part of chapter 13 is taken up with uh, signs of the end, predictions of the end of the age. In chapter 14, though, the plot to uh, to kill Jesus escalates. And so it begins uh, with this anointing of Christ at Bethany uh, as this woman comes and anoints him with oil. And in verse 8 of chapter 14, Jesus says, She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And so we can see where Mark is taking the narrative. He's been moving this way all along. Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who will suffer and die for his people. We're now moving imminently in that direction. And so then Christ institutes the Passover with his disciples, uh, obviously alluding back to the Lord's Supper here, uh, taking the Passover, which is alluding back to the Exodus. Again, Mark is concerned with this idea of Jesus and a new spiritual Exodus establishing a new spiritual kingdom. Uh, And then, interestingly, in chapter 14, verse 51 and 52, 
we have a short little uh, incident here as Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Most commentators and scholars agree this is probably Mark. Uh, this is probably a young John Mark who was watching those events unfold, uh, and he's given us a little hint that he did at least eyewitness some of these events himself. Then at the end of chapter 14, Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asks him in verse 61, um, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so first of all, he answers, yes, I am the Christ. He answers it with the I am statement, which alludes to the name of God in the Old Testament. And he's alluding to Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of Man that Daniel sees in his vision who is seated on the throne with the Ancient of Days. And so uh, they accuse him of blasphemy at that point and they are ready to kill him. And so uh, they take him and they take him to Pilate where he is on trial. Uh, Mark moves through all of this. And then uh, it's interesting some of the details that Mark includes here as we approach the cross uh, the soldiers in chapter 15, uh, and beginning in verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. So they're mocking him, they're abusing him, but ironically, uh, they are identifying him as the king, clothing him in purple with a crown. Of course, it's a crown of thorns as he bears the curse on our behalf, uh, put a reed for a scepter and bowing the knee to him. They don't know what they're doing, obviously. Then in chapter 15, uh, verse 37, 38, and 39, uh, we have another one of Mark's little sandwich things where he takes two ideas and puts them together. In verse 37, uh, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. He's on the cross, he cries out, and he dies. Then in verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we discussed that last week in the book of Matthew, but the veil being torn opens the Holy of Holies so that access to God is no longer blocked by this veil. Uh, the death of Christ has granted us access to the Almighty, to the Holy of Holies. But then Mark does an interesting thing in verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so he tells us of Jesus' last breath and death the tearing of the veil in the temple, and then of Jesus' last breath and death again, making the point that Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross as the Son of God, as this centurion said, God, high priest, sacrificing himself, has put an end to the temple's role uh, as a place of sacrifice and atonement for sins. So they bury Christ, and then in chapter 16, Mark uh, gives us his account of the resurrection. 
Uh, the women go to the tomb and, of course, do not find Jesus there. Uh, he is gone. And so they are instructed to go and tell his disciples uh, that he is going into Galilee before them. And then here's an interesting thing about the Gospel of Mark. We get to verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Almost every modern translation of the scriptures will have something right here between verses 8 and 9 in brackets or they'll have the rest of the chapter inside double brackets with a note that says something to this effect. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. So they would have us believe that the Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. Now, there are some major problems with this idea textually and theologically. Uh, first of all, if it ends at verse 8, the, the, the textual scholars who initially put forth this idea based this on two Greek codexes, Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Neither one of those contain this last part of Mark chapter 16. Those are the earliest manuscripts. Two. All the rest of them have it. Those two don't. Secondly, if it ends at verse 8, and they were afraid. Remember how Mark began his gospel? The beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not very good news if it ends with, and they were afraid. We've got some theological problems there. Well, the Textual scholars who would tell us that's where it ends readily admitted when they put forward that theory that they believed the original ending to Mark had been lost and that some scribe had made up an ending to complete it because the original had been lost. Of course, uh, that we have a problem with that because that denies the doctrine of the preservation of the scriptures. Some modern textual scholars who would uh, claim to be confessional even, men such as James White, uh, would argue that no, nothing has been lost. That's where it was supposed to end. Some major theological problems with ending it there. The other big problem that I have is when that theory was first put forward, there was a textual scholar by the name of John Burgon who responded to those textual critics in 1871 with a book on the ending of Mark, where he goes in detail through the testimony of the early church fathers, the testimony of the early translations of the scripture into other languages, the testimony of early lectionaries where they put together uh, readings for the churches to use from one Sunday to the next, and finds that you can go through the early church fathers' commentaries on the scriptures and find the entire ending of the Mark 16 in their commentaries. He also looks at all the manuscript testimony and shows that the vast majority of manuscripts include it, that those two that don't are riddled with errors and not trustworthy. And he also takes a detailed look at the internal evidence, at the language and the syntax, and shows that this is, in fact, uh, Mark's writing. So if anyone is interested in that, I actually have it as a PDF. It's in the public domain. Uh, it's not an easy read, but it is incredibly interesting. Uh, so for those reasons, 
uh, I would believe that the ending of Mark is absolutely scripture that has been preserved for us. And that is, in fact, good news because as Mark continues the account of the resurrection, when he gets to the end, we have the Great Commission. And then in verse 19, Mark concludes by saying this. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Now that is indeed good news. That's a good way to end the good news of Jesus Christ. It shows the completion of Mark's theme, this idea of exodus, leaving Egypt, leaving Babylon, and going to the promised land. It's complete. Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. The exodus is finished. He has entered the heavenly Canaan and prepared the way for us, his people. The suffering servant accomplished what he had set out to do, which was to rescue his people uh, from their sins and to prepare the way for them to their heavenly home. And Mark writes this for the encouragement of the saints who are suffering persecution in this world as they look at the life of their Savior and his resurrection and ascension. So let's pray.